Martin Luther, I ran across this quote that he had, and uh, I liked it. I want you to hear this. He says, Whoso is armed with the text, the same is a right pastor. Well, we could say a right women's leader, a right Sunday school teacher, a right neighbor, a right friend. You fill it in there, okay? He goes on, though. He says, And my best advice and counsel is that we draw water out of the true fountain that is diligently to read in the Bible. I like that. That's what this is all about today, isn't it? Now, I'm going to tell you that our destination is Hebrews chapter 12. Don't go there. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. And I know in this group, I could get at least half a dozen, at least half a dozen people that if I say, anybody can stand up and give me Hebrews 12, 1, 2, and 3? I know you could. I know you could. Don't fall asleep on me yet, though. We're going to get there. We're going to get to our destination. That's our destination. But we are starting our journey at Acts chapter 20. So let's turn to Acts chapter 20. And I do hope that you have nimble fingers today because um, one of my friends there, Linda, sitting there, she knows that we fly around a lot. So you need nimble fingers when you come and hear me. Now, we come to Acts chapter 20. And this takes place somewhere between 55 and 57 A.D., okay? Um, So the gospel message, the apostolic message, it has been already spread around for somewhere about 20 years. So this isn't, uh, this is is toward the end of Paul's ministry uh, because he's got about another 10 more years of life, 10, 11 years of life, something like that. Um, But he calls, he's on his way to Jerusalem, And he calls the Ephesian elders together. And I want you to recognize something. This is absolutely the only message that he has ever, that's recorded, that we know of, that's recorded, that he has ever given to believers. Now, does that mean he didn't talk to believers? Well, absolutely not. He went on three missionary journeys. He had a whole ton of people that went with him. You know what he did. Got the group together, just like we got together as as teachers last night, and uh, had things explained to us, and had a pep talk, had prayer. You know he talked to believers. But this is the only recorded message that we have. And what he has done is he's called these Ephesian elders, the leaders that are in the church, that he had planted just a few years ago, that he had built up in the faith and had strengthened in the faith. And he calls them together. And from verses, uh, I think it's verses 17 to 35 there, he talks to them. We're going to start at verse 25, and I want you to see this. We're going to start at verse 25. He says this, And now, behold, I know that none of you among, among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, 
Some translations say the church of the Lord, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves, and the Amplified says ferocious wolves, will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. The word of his grace, that's the gospel. That's all of scripture. That's apostolic teaching to the word of his grace. What he tells them is what's to be central in their ministry is the word. Because it's able to build you up. Our speaker mentioned last week or last night, mentioned 2 Timothy 3.16. I don't want to just mention it. I want you to turn there. I want you to see this. 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. I want you to turn there so that you can see this. You know, I'm one of these people that sometimes the ear gate don't work too well, but the eye gate along with the ear gate, oh, so much better for me. I can learn there. I want you to see this. The word is able to build you up. Look at verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. That's the only time we see this word in the New Testament. It's theonoustos. And and, uh, Susan mentioned that last night. Theo meaning God. Noustos meaning breath. This is God's breath. This is God's very breath. John MacArthur says it is the very utterance that comes from the throne room of heaven. Wow. All scripture is breathed out by God. And it is profitable for things. It's profitable because what it's profitable for is this, for teaching, for doctrine so that we can learn things, for reproof, for pointing out when we're wrong. Well, it's one thing to know when you're wrong, but you need to have correction to make it right. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. There's a reason that the man of God may be competent, equipped, For every good work, the word of grace is able to build you up and get you ready for what he's got you to do. It's important. God's word is so important. And what was being being warned about here was those fierce wolves that are going to come in among you and they are going to speak (laughs) twisted things to draw you away. Now, this was toward the end, almost toward the end of his ministry. Now, uh, when he spoke in, in Acts chapter 20, and we get, to, uh, we get a little further down the road, and we see that this has really become a, an intense problem, these wolves that have come in. It was already going on. I want you to look at Galatians chapter 1. Let's look over at Galatians chapter 1. It was already going on, and Galatians was the very first book that um, that he wrote, which was, I believe, was about eight to ten years earlier than this uh, Acts 20 passage. Look at what he says in uh, in Galatians chapter one verse six. 
I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This almost immediately became a problem. Because you know what? (laughs) What did the wolves go after? They go after doctrine. They go after teachings. Well, let's tweak it a little bit. Let's just change this some. It's still happening today, isn't it? I mean, stop and think about it. The Mormons and their approach to Scripture, uh, Christian science and its approach, Christology. I mean, you know, fill in the blank. You could just keep going and going and going. It's what happens. You take God's word... And instead of exegeting it, pulling out the meaning, did you hear the word exit, pull it out? They begin to eisegete. That means putting in their own ideas. Hear the word eisegete? That's deology. I don't even know if that's real. But uh, it's the way I look at it. It's the way I look at it. Um, But they do. They twist these things. And he says, they're going to come in, and they're going to take Scripture, and they're going to twist it and draw disciples away. Um, let's go ahead and look at Colossians because this was this was spoken of in Colossians. Colossians, what I want to look at. Colossians chapter 2. Sometimes I get ahead of my notes. Colossians chapter 2. And um, I have cleverly written in here on verse 6, this is the theme verse for Colossians. I don't know who said that. Jeff, maybe you did. I will give you credit for that, okay? Okay. Uh, since it's anonymous, but here it is. Look at this, chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, and you understand what therefore is, don't you? What is therefore, therefore? Whatever has just been said above this, because of all of that, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. It was going on then. It started just immediately. And he's warning them. And he war- it's, a, it's a warning for us too. Beware of those wolves. Beware of those who are going to twist and make it different than it should be. Does that make sense? You get that? Okay. Uh, There was a great, great danger of wolves. And when we come to the book of Hebrews, uh, we can go ahead and turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. We'll just, (laughs) that scares you, doesn't it, when our destination is 12. uh, We are not going to, we're just going to linger a little bit. We're not going to go word for word. Um, But Hebrews is an exhortation to Jewish Christians to hold fast to their faith in Christ. Let me say it again. It's an exhortation to Jewish Christians to hold fast to their faith 
in Christ. We don't know who the target was, who the target audience was, because as you can see in the uh, when, when we start out in verse one, we don't have what I call an address. You know, all the other letters it says like to the saints in Colossae or to the saints and beloved in Philippi. You know, we don't have an address here. We don't know exactly who it is, whether it's targeting just one group or to me most likely it's targeting um, this broader geographical sphere you know where it's going to be circulated amongst uh, uh, Jewish churches um, that have gone Jewish Hebrew, uh, Hebrew Christians that are going the churches there then it's going to be circulated we know they did that we know they did that the in Colossians chapter 4 verse 15 when he uh, when Paul ends the letter he mentions the letter that he's writing, the letter Colossians, he says, um, after you have read it, send it to the people at Laodicea, one of the other towns. And the letter that the Laodiceans is, you come and have it brought to you and read to your people. We don't have a letter to Laodicea. You know why? Because that was Paul's personal letter. That was from his heart. These that we have are God-breathed. They're from his heart. That's why they're still here, all right? Let's just get that clear and get that out of the way here. So we don't really know exactly all of the circumstances. It's not told, but we can guess it. It's those fierce wolves that have gotten in and are twisting things to draw disciples away. There's, there is a Presbyterian minister, broadcaster, and author. His name is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Isn't that a fantastic name? Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. I love it. And he summarizes. I love that. He has a one-sentence summary for the book of Hebrews. He says, The book of Hebrews was written to Hebrews, telling them to quit being Hebrews. <laughs> That's it. That's basically what it is. That's absolutely basically what it is. Because the book of Hebrews shows the relationship of Christianity to Judaism. And it's a very heated, it's a very burning, and it's a very searing issue at this time. And it needs to be talked about. Those wolves had gotten in. Now, as we get to uh, the book of Hebrews, right at the beginning here, it's going to talk about the supremacy of God's Son. You know why I know that? Because my heading here in ESV says the supremacy of God's son. That's why. That's basically why I know it says that. But it is. That's an excellent statement. These first four verses are just so full. And I hadn't initially intended to do this. But as, we were, as I was putting things together, I thought, no, we got to start right here. I want you to see what this says. Follow along with me. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But, now, let me tell you something. But is a word that means there's going to be a difference. There's going to be a 180 turnaround. I don't see your butt until you turn around. And that's what we've got here. We've got a 180. But this is going to be totally different. But 
In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And look at what he says about his son. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, the very essence of God, all of his attributes, all of his abilities. We have a true and a trustworthy revelation or representation of who God is. All right, let's move on. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now there's a but. Talk about a difference. The prophets, okay, they were good. We needed them. They got us ready for salvation. We could find salvation and the pointing to it in the Old Testament, in those sacred writings. But when Jesus came, Look at, yes, the supremacy of the Son of God. It's established right at the beginning for these Hebrews, uh, these uh, Jewish Christians, these Hebrew Christians. We have this, as we go through, and we're, we're not going to hit everything, but we see that it, it, we, it talks about the superiority of the Son of God to the prophets and to the angels, to Moses and to Joshua, to the priesthood. There is a superiority of Jesus, a supremacy, as it says here, of God's Son. We also see that there's a superiority of the new covenant compared to the old covenant. In chapter 7, verse 22, it talks about uh, Jesus being the guarantor. Amplified says the guarantee, the guarantor of a better covenant. Let's go ahead and look at chapter 9. Let's look at 9. We're going to see something else here. Chapter 9, and we will begin, where's my 9? Here it is, right where I left it. All right, chapter 9, and we're going to look at verse 11. And this is talking about the superiority of the new covenant to the old covenant. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he, Jesus Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant. We have its superiority here. And you notice in that those first four verses that I read, there was words like better and superior. We're not going to do this, but I know... Uh, Jeff and Taryn and others, when they teach, they like to get key words out of passages. These are big, important words because they show how much better, how much more excellent, how much superior, more superior Jesus is. Hmm. 
Then we come to chapters, and this is where we're going to end up, 11, 12, and 13. And this talks about the superiority of faith. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. And we shall read that. We shall read that. Therefore, ta-da, you know what that means? Because of everything that was said just prior. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. All right. Very familiar words. But before we even talk about it very much, I want you to look at verse 1, the very last uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven words. The race that is set before us. Now, race is a Greek word, A-G-O-N, agon, agon, I don't know, I'm not Greek, I don't know how to pronounce it, um, and I'm not being flippant, I, I don't, I, I, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's the word that we get our English word agony from. Does that tell you something? The race that is set before you? Agon is in a word group of I think it was either five or six different words, but they all have this root word of A-G-O-N, where we get agony from. So you've got this idea of a struggle. You've got this idea of a conflict. You've got this idea of something that's not a piece of cake. And I want to tell you something. You need to understand this. You don't choose your race. Did you notice it says the race that is set before us. We don't choose our race. Absolutely every single hot body that's sitting in here today can come up with at least a half a dozen people that they can think of that are going through some really hard times. I'm not even going to go through some of the people that I know at our church that are hurting and that are going through many things. Some of you that are sitting in here are doing that yourselves right now. Whether it's with grandchildren or children or, or parents, uh, whether you've become that sandwich generation where you've got to take care of your, your family and you've got to take care of your mom and dad and they have... There's all sorts of things. And it can be financial. I know of uh, at least three people, uh, well, two of them have lost almost everything and another one has has lost everything, that are going through struggles right now. We know this. We don't choose that. We wouldn't have done that. The race is chosen for you. The race is chosen for you. You don't choose the race, but you do choose how you run the race. You do choose how you run the race. And that's what we're going to talk about here. Let's look at... Uh, the very first verse, it says, therefore, because of all that has just been said, there are 16 different, I think what 
I think some of my one of my Bibles uh, it, it calls the Hebrews the the heroes of the faith. There's at least sixteen heroes, if you will. Anyway, sixteen faith people that are named. And then the last few verses, there's a ton of people that are just referred to. Those who stopped the mouths of lions. Well, we can figure out who stopped the mouths of lions. If you've been very, you know, in church very long, you can figure that out. And those who have been sawn asunder and those who have, you know, you can figure some of this. But there is a ton of them. There are absolutely a myriad of them. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, I want to talk to you about the, first of all, the we, since we. He is writing to believers. He is writing, and I've mentioned this before, to Jewish Christians. And he includes himself with them. So it's not someone that's just standing back and preaching to you guys. He says, we are surrounded by so great a cloud. And that word cloud in the Vines Expository Dictionary, the Greek Expository Dictionary, Vines says that this is used metaphorically. It is speaking of a dense multitude, a throng, in other words. There's a ton of people that have been on what what, uh, uh, MacArthur calls this the faith race. There's a ton of people that we can talk about that have been on the faith race. He says, since we are surrounded by so great a crowd of witnesses, cloud of witnesses, and this Greek word witness is M-A-R-T-U-S, or it could be M-A-R-T-U-R. Does that sound familiar? It's martyr. It's the word that we get our English word martyr from. They have shown by their lives and perhaps even their death, they have given the testimony of keeping faith. They have given the testimony to the great power of faith. I can't tell you how many times I have heard people, and usually it's been people outside of the church, but every now and then we'll have one of the church people say, I know my daddy's looking down and he's so proud of me. And my mama, oh, if she, she's seeing what's happening, she would not. She doesn't like that at all. We get this idea that they're standing around watching us. That ain't scriptural. It absolutely isn't. Don't fall into that. I have a granddaughter that got a very expensive camera a year ago for her birthday. And my dad was a photographer. He was a combat photographer in World War II, came home, made his living as a photographer. Up till his dying day, he was a photographer. I would never say to Gabrielle, your grandpa's watching you, and he know, he's so proud that you're a photographer. I could easily say, if grandpa, if my daddy knew that, he would really like it. He'd be proud of you. But he is, they are not watching us. This is not a stadium in which we're running this race, and they're around watching us. That's totally against everything that we know about heaven. Heaven has nothing to do with this spirit slime world with this sin-soaked world has nothing to do with it all you have to do is read some things in the scripture to see what heaven is like and you know that they aren't paying any attention to this they are glorified they are in the presence of the lord jesus christ they are worshiping the father they're learning stuff they're ahead of us right now 
We need to get there, don't we? But you see what I'm getting at. If you go on this idea that there is this gray cloud watching us, wondering what we're doing and approving or disapproving, then you can start the idea of we could pray to them. We could say, Mary, go talk to him for me. Do you get that? That ain't what this is talking about. It just says that their lives have been a testimony to what the race of faith is like. Move on. Okay. Then, just I just, you know, this is something that I really get impassioned about. All right, so we come to this, and it, it says, let us also, remember, there's that let us. He's talking about, he's talking to Jewish believers, a believer that he is, or she is, whoever's writing this. And I'm not going to get into that. I'm not going to get into who wrote this, all right? But notice that little word also. I've only found it in the NASB and in the ESV. It's not in the King James. It's not in the Amplified. It's not in the NIV. I, I, I must admit I haven't checked the Living Translation or the Holman. But I like the fact that it's in there. Because this tells you that they... Those that were um, chapter 11, they also had to do this. Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which so closely clings. Let us lay aside every weight. The Greek word for weight means bulk. Let us lay aside every bulk. And that's anything that would slow you down. Absolutely anything that would slow you down. 1628 was a dark day in naval history because the Swedish, the Swedish warship, after being built for two years, they had 64 iron cannons on it. And it on its maiden voyage, as it went out, it got one mile and sank. Too much weight, too much bulk. 64 cannons, don't you think that's just a little bit more than you need? And it sunk, and it sunk because of the weight. You can't run the race with bulk. I love what John MacArthur says about this particular instance here. He says, the bulk, for this audience, for these Jewish Christians, what was the weight? It was pounds and pounds of Jewish legalism, rabbinic tradition, and dead works. You can't run a faith race with dead works. You just can't do it, hanging on to those works. And then he says, and the sin which clings so closely. Now, MacArthur says that this refers to the surrounding sin of the world. And we are in a world full of sin. All you have to do is turn on television, and you will just get, uh, I don't know about any of you, but I do. I'm so thankful for sports. Oh, man, what a relief to be worried about the man on third instead of the man in North Korea and what, you know, all this sort of stuff. But, and that's what he says. He says it really refers to all the surrounding evil in the world. But I want you to turn to Romans chapter 7 because honestly, maybe it's just me. I don't know. But I think it goes even deeper than what is surrounding us. And maybe it's that, that world that surrounds us that, um, 
begins to seep in. Maybe that's maybe that's it. But look at what Rome, what Paul says in Romans chapter seven. Did I say chapter three? Oh, good. Okay, chapter seven. Oh, I'm not in chapter seven. Okay, Romans chapter seven. Ah, it's almost time to retire. Um, and we're going to look at verse 21. It's a familiar one. He says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. So maybe this is what MacArthur was talking about. Look at verse 22. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who, not what, that's sweet, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I have a lot of law of sin working in me. And I'm... I'm, I'm not saying this to be a clever speaker. I, this is sincere transparency. I struggle with pride. I struggle with fear. Last night as we were teaching, it thundered in the rain. Or I don't know if it thundered, but the rain just came down in buckets. And I saw a couple of the ladies look over like this. And I, in my inward self, I thought, oh, i got to go home in that. And I don't even see well at night. And I don't. I'm telling you, the Lord just got me home last night. And I mean that sincerely. I do not see well at night. I don't usually drive at night. I'm a fear factory. And there's a lot of times that I just have a nonchalant attitude. Oh, I'll get to that later. I'll read that later. I can do my Bible study later. I'm not saying that with pride. That's the sin that clings so closely. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Oh my goodness. All right. Um, Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run Let us run. It's written to believers. Let us run. And I used to think, I really did years ago, think that they understood this idea of racing more and the discipline and uh, uh, the self-control that was all involved in this. But now we've got Peloton and we've got Fitbit and we've got personal trainers. So I guess we understand this too. Running a race is disciplined. There's self-control. There's commitment. And it says, run with endurance. Run with endurance the race that is set before us. That, that verb, in, or yes, that, ver, um, that noun, with endurance, the, the King James, because, I mean, you can tell by my age, I've just grown up with the King James. Every now and then it just flies in there. And the word for King in King James is patience. It's patience. And if you look up the word, that's what it means. Patient endurance. That's what you've got here. Run with patient endurance. That speaks of a long haul. That speaks of a long haul. It is not a sprint. It's not even just a little jog. It is a marathon. It is a life race, a life race of a faith race. 
Does that make sense to you? That's what it says here. That's exactly what it says here. But what I want you to do is turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2.19 because you're going to see why you can, absolutely why you can run this life race, this race of faith. Chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses, um, not verse 19, 19 and 20, or just 19, it's just one verse. But look at what it says, what Paul is reminding Timothy about here. Paul says to Timothy, God's firm foundation, it stands, and it bears this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. That's his sovereignty, and that's his preservation. And then it says, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. That's man's responsibility. That's our perseverance. We've got two sides of the coin. We've got the sovereign preservation of God, and then we've got man's responsibility. Did you notice which came first? Why can you run the race? Because he's preserving you. He made the initiative. He's the one that's doing it. He's preserving you. All right, let's go now. Surprise, surprise, let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. Because we see this word endurance and this idea of endurance once uh, placed before them once, uh, uh, once one other time. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36. Well, no, we're going to start at verse 32. And he reminds them of what it used to be like for them. Check this out. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and at the coming, the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He reminds them of what they had been. And the rest of the the whole book is encouraging them to stay there, to stay there. Now we're back to Hebrews 12, okay? Back to Hebrews 12. We've talked about... uh, Well, let's read Hebrews 12, verse 2. It says, looking to Jesus. The NIV says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now, what I have spoken so far about, or so far on, is um, the encouragers. Now, if you think that chapter 11 is to be our example, shame on you. They are not to be our example. They are our encouragement. We've talked about encumbrances, and we've talked about endurance, and here is our example. 
looking to Jesus. Who's your example? Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The founder, the word that is used here, and in the King James it says author, but Vine's Expository Dictionary that I've quoted before designates this as either the originator or the leader, or, and it also goes on to say that he is the source from which it proceeds. Where did you get your faith? Jesus. Who originated it? Jesus. Who is the leader of it? Jesus. Where did his fountainhead from? Jesus. We don't have faith on our own. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not of yourself. That little word it in the Greek, it points to both salvation and faith and grace as being something that comes from God. My faith is not from me. It didn't come from me. Because if it had come from me, it would have been weak and puny. It would have been earthly. It would have been just full of the slime of Satan. But we have a faith that comes from our Jesus, our founder. It comes from him. And he is the perfecter. In the Greek, that means it's teleon. And that means the one that carries faith to its completion. He carries faith to its perfection. I just love Philippians 1, 6. I can almost hear Paul saying this. He says, and I am sure, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There's where our completed faith is going to come, isn't it? Notice what it says here about Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Who for the joy that was set before him. What's that joy? Well, Hebrews... uh, 2 verses 8, the second part, 8b through 10, talks about how he had joy in bringing many sons to glory. Now, all you feminists down there, don't get worked up over that word sons. Because in this day, sons were inheritors. They were the ones that got the inheritance. I want to be a son. And that's what I am. We are inheritors with him. When Paul wrote about being a Christian, he never used that word Christian. You don't see that word Christian in his. You know what you do? Over 70 times he talked about being in Christ. And then equally as much he talked about being with Christ. That's what our personality is to be. We are in Christ. That's what distinguishes us. We are with Christ. Who for the joy that was set before him. R.C. Sproul said, Jesus is the example of believing God in a crisis that we don't even imagine. Hmm. Let me show you some other joy that he has. Turn to Jude, that little bitty book. Jude, the one right before Revelation. We're going to look at 
By the way, Jude is the only book in all of Scripture that is solely devoted to apostasy, to these wolves that come in and twist, twist Scripture, trying to draw people away. And it's a little bit pitiful because uh, we've been studying in Jude in our in our uh, Sunday school, or not our Sunday school, our, our ladies' Bible study um, with the seniors. And um, it's a little pitiful because Jude says, what I wanted to write to you about was our common faith. Not our ordinary faith, but our shared faith, our common faith. I wanted to write to you a word of encouragement about that, and you just know that he was going to be praising the Lord and thanking. But he says, what I've got to write to you about is about the wolves. He doesn't say wolves, but he talks about certain persons who have crept in unawares and what they've done to the gospel. And he says, you need to contend for the faith. And that word contend talks about combatant. It's a war. It's not just a matter of, oh, you shouldn't do that. It's a matter of, get them, sick them. Contend for the faith that was given once for all. Haras, which means one time and it doesn't need to be changed. It's that type of faith. He says, contend for the faith. And then he comes to this beautiful doxology. And I want you to see part of Jesus' joy. Look at this. Now to him. All right, if you want to know who the to him is, look at verse 25. To him, that is, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, let's go back to 24. Now, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who is able, and this is the noun form, or the verb form of the noun dunamis, which means power. It's the word that we get our English word dynamite from. So we're talking overpower. Now, to him who is overpower able to keep you and that's a military term it's not just possess you hang on to you it's keep you in a military sense to guard and to watch over to bring total protection to keep you from stumbling and in the greek it means to keep you sure-footed And it's actually the only time in the New Testament that this particular word is used, apostatus, which is where we get the word apostasy. Now, there are other words in the New Testament that refer to apostasy, yes, but the whole point is he's able to keep you from losing your footing, from becoming apostate. He's able to do that. He's got this uber power. He can keep you from doing that. And notice what else it says. And to present you, the Greek means to make you stand blameless before the presence of his glory with what? Great joy. He's happy about it. We ought to be happy about it. With great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Mm, Great. I want you to go back to uh, chapter 12. And in these last two minutes, this is going to be hard, but we can do this. We can do this. I'm going to read to you from the Amplified Bible. I want you to follow along in your Bible. I will read from the Amplified. Sometime 
around the ninth or 10th grade, I got it into my head, I think it was me, to give my daughter, Courtney, an Amplified Bible because I thought, it's so good because the Amplified, what it does, it takes a translation and it gives you all the hues and all the in, uh, innuendos of what's being said to the point where it reads the way one of the readers would be reading the book back in the time period. It says what what it's supposed to say. You know, sometimes we get all bunched up not understanding something, but it it really tells you the what the word means, and it gives you a full idea. The trouble with that is, though, being amplified, it's long. Uh, in the ESV, verses 1, 2, and 3 is 83 words. In the Amplified, it's almost 140. It's 139 words. Well, those of you who know Cliff Buttermore, you've seen him around. He used to be the youth pastor. He got to the point where he wouldn't call on Courtney to read any of the passages because he'd go on and on and on. But that's okay. We've forgiven him of that. (laughs) All right. Let's read this. We've talked about the encouragement from the witnesses, those who gave testimony of the life of faith. We've talked about the encumbrances that have to get all out of the way. We've talked about endurance. And by the way, did you notice it said endure twice when it talks about Jesus? He endured. There was endurance on his part too. And now we've talked about the example. I want to read this, and, and we'll close with this. Therefore, then... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses who have borne testimony to the truth, let us strip off and throw aside every encumbrance, unnecessary weight, and the sin which so readily, delftly, and cleverly clings to and entangles us. And let us run with patient endurance and steady and active persistence the appointed course of the race that is set before us looking away from all that will distract to Jesus, who is the leader and the source of our faith, giving the first incentive for our belief, and is also its finisher, bringing it to maturity and perfection. He, for the joy of obtaining the prize that was set before him, endured the cross, despising and ignoring the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Just think of him who endured from sinners such grievous opposition and bitter hostility against himself. Reckon up and consider it all in comparison with your trials so that you may not grow weary or exhausted, losing heart and relaxing and fainting in your mind.